Good morning, everyone. I am Judge Lucy Inman of the North Carolina Court of Appeals, and I'm so honored to be holding a session of oral argument here at Duke Law School. Um, presiding with me this morning are my colleagues to my right, Judge Allegra Collins, and to my left, Judge Darren Jackson. We are being kept safe here uh, this morning by the Court of Appeals Deputy Marshal Richard Remillard. And we are, we're just very happy that, uh, that sometimes you don't have to go to the Court of Appeals building in Raleigh. Um, and sometimes you can leave one class and just walk in and, and hear Court of Appeals argument. Um, the first case that we have on the calendar today for oral argument, I believe, is State v. Hester. And, uh, counsel, we will hear your arguments. And I'll just say at the outset, we're going to have oral arguments in this case and then in the second case. And um, you may, um, you, you probably have other places to be. Um, but if you don't, we're going to adjourn the session of court at the end of the second oral argument and we'll have some questions from students, and I just welcome counsel to stay if you would like to, but certainly you're not required to. Very well. And I believe, Deputy Remillard, can you keep time? Sure. Very well. Um, and counsel from appellate, for appellate will hear from you, and can you let us know if you wish to reserve any time for rebuttal? Yes, Your Honor, thank you. I would like to reserve five minutes for rebuttal, please. Very well. Thank you. Good morning, and may it please the court. My name is Chris Haney, and I represent Mr. David Hester. Let me level with you. I agree it's not good to be caught in the act while being in somebody else's building without consent. It ain't good to identify yourself to then get caught on camera while you were in somebody else's building without consent. Some laws are broken. That is how Mr. David Hester's attorney began his closing argument that was supposed to defend Mr. Hester. The attorney repeated this theme of being caught in the act five times during his closing argument. That language was an implied admission of guilt to felony breaking and entering felony larceny, and felony of possession of stolen goods on December 13. Mr. Hester did not consent to the admissions. Therefore, pursuant to Harbison and McAllister, Mr. Hester's right to the effective assistance of counsel was violated. Moreover, the language I just shared was in stark contrast to Mr. Hester's own testimony, where he maintained his innocence. Because his attorney presented an inconsistent theory of the case, the attorney was ineffective under Strickland. <clears throat> Finally, the attorney made that closing statement after not following or indeed apparently hearing Mr. Hester's request to ask certain questions of witnesses. In fact, the attorney was having such a hard time hearing, he told the court that after jury selection in this case, he had to go to urgent care for a hearing problem. He said on the record another three times that he was having a hard time hearing. What that meant was that Mr. Hester's right to direct ultimately what was happening during trial pursuant to Ali was violated. In short, your honors, this trial did not proceed the way it should have under the Sixth Amendment, and Mr. Hester therefore respectfully requests a new trial. To understand more about why this trial was so flawed, I'd like to start with a Harbison-McAllister issue. Perhaps for the law students in the room, it's worth noting that North Carolina courts are unusual for what we call the Harbison rule, which is simply that if an accused person's attorney admits guilt without that person's consent, then that is automatically ineffective assistance of counsel without having to go through the prejudice analysis that we normally would for a Strickland claim. 
as this court knows, in McAllister, the Supreme Court explicitly said that this rule comes into play even if an attorney only makes an implied admission of guilt. Now, is that an admission to guilt for the charges that he's facing or any charges, as in like a lesser included, or is it simply elements? What do we need to look at? Yes, Your Honor. So McAllister says that there's a functional admission to guilt of the charged offenses, then there's a Harbison violation. And if an attorney admits guilt to even lesser included offense uh, charges without the client's consent, then we do have a Harbison issue. And I would just note, Your Honor, that even the Harbison case itself was actually about lesser included offenses, uh, as well as the Matthews case that I believe is cited in the memorandum of additional authority. And McAllister itself was specifically about admitting a misdemeanor. So I think in this case, that actually brings me to where I'd like to uh, start with talking. Your Honor? Oh, just <laughs> listening intently. In, in Thank you. Is I'd like to start with the reading of what Mr. Hester's attorney said, that as I understand uh, the state's brief, to be not disputing that the attorney did actually admit the elements of misdemeanor breaking and entering, that Mr. Hester was in a building without consent. And so, as I said, since we're, we had an attorney who admitted committing a misdemeanor without Mr. Hester's consent, that alone is grounds for relief. And as I noted in the brief, as I understand the trial attorney's arguments, he was also admitting to misdemeanor possession of stolen goods. So all of that, even if the court doesn't necessarily agree with a broader reading of the trial attorney's comments, that admission to a misdemeanor that Mr. Hester did not consent to is enough to allow and indeed require granting relief. But now I'd like to talk a little bit more about the broader reading of the argument that I talked about in the brief and just mentioned that the attorney was admitting guilt not just to those misdemeanors, but to the felonies. Can I ask a quick question? So if, if there is an admission to the misdemeanors mm -hmm. and there is a new trial, is it only on those misdemeanors, I assume? It would be, he's certainly, Mr. Hester is protected from being tried again on all of the earlier uh, offense dates. As far as the felonies of which he's already been convicted of, there could be a new trial for all three of the felonies uh, that were alleged on December 13. Even, even if this panel, I understand you have two oh. arguments. One argument is that the attorney admitted the elements of misdemeanor breaking and entering and misdemeanor possession of stolen goods. The other argument, which I think you're about to get into, is that the attorney effectively admitted guilt to felonies. And I think what Judge Collins' question was, is if this panel agreed with you that there was admission to the misdemeanors but not to the felonies, would the relief here be that he gets a new trial on the felony charges as well as misdemeanor charges? Yes, and thank you. I'm sorry, I didn't understand the better. question. She said it better. <laughs> <laughs> Always the second person who's watching the game show can think of it, so, you know. I think what, what has to happen if there is a new trial is that Mr. Hester has to have the ability to have jurors decide what if any crimes he committed on December 13. And I think that really should be the, as the court decides what the remedy is, we are asking for a new trial uh, where he can, you know, get a fair process. But the remedy, I think, needs to reflect him having that chance to have the jurors decide whether he committed any crimes on December 13 without having his trial attorney be the one to, to indicate that he did. And so you're right, Your Honor, as you noted, I do want to talk more about that broader reading. The McAllister case says that the real test for whether we have an admission of guilt is whether there's a functional admission of guilt that leaves the jurors to conclude that the uh, accused person did something. And so in the language I started with, the trial attorney talked about Mr. Hester being caught in the act well being in somebody else's building without consent. That's really two parts. We have being caught in the act 
well being in somebody else's building. So we've got the uh, being in somebody else's building. What's the other act? The attorney continued with making the concessions when he said, as I noted, some laws are broken. And I think this is a very, very clear use of the passive voice. So we need to figure out what laws and by whom. And we need to look at the rest of the argument. Now, at this point, I'd get to one of the some of the language that the parties talk about a fair amount in the briefs. The language about Mr. Hester uh, being caught, according to the attorney, with what he called the elephant in the room, the keys. As the court recalls, these keys, according to the state, were from an abandoned power plant where officers found Mr. Hester. Now, when Mr. Hester testified, he denied having any, he denied that he took any keys from the power plant. He maintained his innocence. In contrast, his trial attorney talked about how keys don't grow out of the ground, how they don't materialize, how they don't uh, show up out of nowhere, as in Star Trek, and said that the keys apparently belonged to the power plant. What this language did was really throw doubt on Mr. Hester's testimony. The attorney was suggesting with this kind of jokey language that there was no innocent explanation for the keys being where the state said that they were. The trial attorney, in effect, was bolstering the state's case that Mr. Hester was in possession of stolen goods that he had after he broke into the power plant for the purpose of stealing them. And I would just refer to the Cholan case where we had a trial attorney who treated an accused person's pretrial incriminating statements that the state used as true as an example of how attorneys should not be casting doubt on their client's statements. And then after using that language, jokey language about the keys, telling the jurors in effect that there's no innocent explanation for them being there, the trial attorney then talked again about how, quote, it looks pretty bad, end quote, for the December 13th allegations. And he said that Mr. Hester was caught in the warehouse, and he asked the jurors not to shut their eyes to what they saw. That language was telling the jurors that Mr. Hester was, in his attorney's view, the one caught in the act of breaking the law, particularly because the jurors did get instructions on the doctrines of acting in concert, as well as recent possession. The attorney was basically helping the jurors find a path to convicting Mr. Hester of these felonies. So what exactly are jurors supposed to take from the closing statement? That Mr. Hester did something wrong on December 13th, and the jurors should recognize more specifically that he did enter the building without consent, that he had the power plant's property in his truck, that there were no plausible innocent explanations for how it could have gotten there, and that he had that felonious intent when he entered the building. When you put all of those together, Mr. Hester's attorney was making a functional admission of guilt to those charges. Can you please identify where in the in the closing argument or other statements by the attorney, the attorney admitted that the defendant had felonious intent when he entered the building? I, as I read the language of being caught in the act, Your Honor, that is an implied admission of felonious intent. When I look at page 463 of the record, and I hear how you've characterized mm -hmm. everything, and then we get to the part where he says, we're talking about keys, tools, die. None of these were ever reported stolen. Um, there was no report of any of these items being stolen essentially casting doubt on the state's witnesses and their veracity. Don't we read the whole closing argument together? You're, yes, Your Honor, you are correct that you, the court does read the whole closing argument together. And I certainly recall that page of the transcript. Respectfully to your point about having to read it together, I would say to understand that particular reference, you also have to look at what else did the trial attorney tell the jurors about how to look at that evidence. Yes, he said those things, but then he also used that language about how keys don't show up out of nowhere. 
And what I would say is that if you have a trial attorney who's talking to the jurors about the state's evidence, yes, in one breath he's saying that, but in the rest of this, his closing argument, he's really making that argument that none of this property belonged to Mr. Hester, that Mr. Hester was innocent. I don't think he's making a credible argument on that. He's not trying to make a credible argument. What he is is implying guilt. And I would, you know, one of the other points that comes up in the brief is that in perhaps uh, also another point in the record the court uh, might have considered is that Mr. Hester's trial attorney did close his arguments by saying, find Mr. Hester not guilty. And that's just not enough to avoid a harbison error. Specifically, I would refer uh, again, to the Cholan case, where in paragraph 26, the court said, simply asking a jury to find defendant not guilty did not serve to negate the trial counsel's prior statements. And what I understand that language to mean is that just saying he's not guilty aren't magic words that absolve an attorney of a Harbison problem. And for that matter, to your question, Judge Collins, just in some parts of your closing statement, talking about the state's evidence and casting doubt on it is not enough to avoid a Harbison problem if the tenor of your argument as a whole really is leading the trial attorney, uh, leading the jurors, rather, to finding someone guilty when that person clearly did not want um, the trial attorney to make that admission. Can I ask a question? Um, and I apologize if I overlooked this in the record. You talked about the attorney's hearing problems. Mm-hmm. Um, when this trial occurred, did this happen in the COVID times? So it happened, uh, let me flip. Yes, it did. I mean, it happened when we were having people in masks in courthouses. Yes. I'm just curious if you know whether in this trial everyone was wearing a mask. Oh, Your Honor, I don't. I don't think the record gives us any way of knowing. And certainly, even if we were in a time when everybody was wearing masks, you know, certainly, um, you know, prior members of the state Supreme Court have issued directives that would have potentially been affecting this trial. And at the end of the day, the trial attorney still had a duty to understand what his client was saying. You know, and maybe that means he needed to ask the judge for a minute to pass notes at a time when it would not be disruptive, whatever the case is. But at the end of the day, if you're a trial attorney and you have to try a case in the middle of a pandemic, Strickland and the Sixth Amendment mean that people still have the right to the effective assistance of counsel. So about those questions, does mm-hmm. does a defendant have the right to have every single one of his questions asked or does the attorney have some sort of duty to ensure that perhaps helpful questions are asked? Well, Your Honor, I don't, uh, I don't think that the Ali case says that an accused person has the right to every single one of his questions being asked. If, for example, someone wanted to ask a question about, say, a polygraph that was obviously inadmissible. Uh, however, I, the line that you referred to is, does an attorney, can an attorney say, no, I don't want to ask that because it's not helpful? That's not where Ali draws the line. In the Ali case, which gives clients a great deal of autonomy over how their cases are handled, it specifically says that questions of uh, the issue of what questions to ask normally isn't a trial attorney's wheelhouse. But if a client specifically says, no, I want you to ask these questions, then the attorney needs to ask them. You know, and of course, there are the, you know, there might be the exceptional question, like the hypo I gave of a polygraph. But the attorney doesn't have the right to say, no, I think that's an admissible, um, proper question. I just don't think we should ask it. And on this record, we don't know what the questions were, correct? Correct. So is there any way for us to to inquire into it, or is this more a case where it needs to go back for some sort of appropriate relief hearing? Certainly, Your Honor, if the court has questions Mm -hmm. about what the questions that Mr. Hester wanted to ask were, 
or any any further questions about what exactly happened between Mr. Hester and his attorney, then a remand would be appropriate. And the, this court does have, of course, the authority to do that. So would you agree that without knowing what the questions were that the defendant here wanted to be asked, this panel is really powerless to assess what difference it made, whether it was a core to his defense, whether it even rose to the level of falling within the league? Well, I would. I don't know, Your Honor, that I would call the panel powerless because I think the record does give the court at least some clues as to where Mr. Hester wanted to go with his arguments. We do know from his testimony that he did want to maintain his innocence. And by and powerless, I don't mean powerless to make a decision, <laughs> but I mean without the authority to make any findings of fact, mm. without the authority to engage in any fact-specific analysis because those facts aren't in the record. I see. Uh, yes, Your Honor, I agree. Clearly, the Court of Appeals does not find facts in the first instance. And if the court thinks that more fact-finding is necessary, then a remand would be appropriate. Can I ask you one question? You have a petition for writ of certiorari on yes. the attorney's fees, but the attorney's fee order is not in the record. It was appended to your petition, but it, you didn't file a motion to supplement the record. Would you agree that we really we, we can't review an order that's not in the record? Uh, I certainly agree that is the court's that is the court's procedure. Um, and respectfully, with the petition, I don't have it in front of me, so I, I would have to refresh my memory as to exactly what I included. Um, I so I would just yes, Rod, I can't disagree with that. So as far as the petition goes, I would just rest on the pleadings. Okay, thank you. But I, I appreciate you asking that. And I think we jump, we've talked a little bit about both the, uh, about the Ali issue. I did want to, if I could, jump briefly back to one point on the Harbison claim. And then, if, I, if time permits, speak briefly about the regular Strickland uh, claim, which is the question, uh, thank you, of what Mr. Hester consented to is this court knows there's a high bar for finding that somebody consents to their attorney making admissions. Specifically, the Matthews case says that even if someone understands the general theory that the trial attorney wants to advance, that person still needs to consent to the specific admissions that the attorney is going to make. And we've got here, I know that this court, certainly if it's concerned there isn't enough on the record, to your point, Judge Inman, about this court not finding facts in the first instance, the court certainly could remand for more fact-finding about what about that issue. But I would say here we've got Mr. Hester getting on the stand, being under oath, I didn't do anything wrong, essentially. And I think that gives the court a much better sense of how things are going to proceed uh, of what Mr. Hester wanted to do than it might have in some of the other cases. Because he actually testified, because he actually said that he didn't do anything wrong. Exactly, Your Honor. Um, just to um, make sure I'm understanding your argument, your argument, you were arguing that per Harbison and per McAllister, um, that, that if this panel agreed with you that the defendant's attorney made admissions of his guilt without his <coughs> consent, that we don't consider whether or not absent that admission, the jury would have found the defendant guilty? Exactly. <coughs> Harbison is very clear. The point of Harbison is not anything to do with a prejudice in the sense of a prejudice analysis. And Judge, I see our um, bailiff is very kindly giving me time signals. Is that until To your I rebuttal have... time. You're into your rebuttal oh, time. No, so thank you. He, he has one more minute to his rebuttal. Oh, thank you. Um, yes, Harbison does not require the Strickland prejudice analysis because if I talk about harm in the, in the, pre, in the Harbison part of the argument, the harm done is not to the jury's deliberations in terms of weighing 
the evidence like we might think in other cases. The harm done is that Harbison says that Mr. Hester has the right to have the jurors and no one else decide guilt. So it's a harm to his autonomy. And so it's the evidence for or against him doesn't really enter into that. The question is whether his trial attorney held up his end of the bargain and made sure that the jurors and nobody else decided whether he was innocent or guilty. And Mr. Hester's trial attorney did not do that here. He did concede guilt. He did, did give the path uh, of how to reach a guilty verdict for the charges on December 13th to the jurors. Thank you. Thank you. Now hear from counsel for the state. Good morning. May it please the court. My name is Jeremy Lindsley. I am an assistant attorney general with the North Carolina Department of Justice, and I represent the state in this matter. Your honors, when you consider this case as a whole and its full context, which the court must do, the record is sufficient to show that there was no Harbison error, that trial counsel did not provide ineffective assistance uh, throughout this trial, and that um, there is no reason why the court should have conducted any inquiry into whether or not there was an absolute impasse between trial counsel and his client. Uh, I'd like to begin with the first issue dealing with the Harbison question in this case. Um, the state contends that this case is not a Harbison case. It does not fall within the, the confines of, of Harbison and McAllister and cases like those in which uh, the, the, the defendant need only show um, that uh, there was an admission of guilt without the defendant's consent. Here, in this case, it's a little bit unlike a lot of the other cases dealing with Harbison questions because the defendant actually testified, and we don't normally see that in these cases. It's somewhat unusual. But it's a significant factor in this case that the defendant testified because during his testimony, he made certain admissions, um, including that he was in the warehouse. Uh, that is a fact in evidence in this case, uh, one that defense counsel was free to use during his closing argument, which I would suggest he had to use during his closing argument to save his own credibility. Uh, defense counsel's responsibility is not only to protect the, the, uh, the, uh, uh, his client's uh, um, uh, credibility, but also his own, the, the attorney's own credibility, because in the eyes of the jury, he's the one or she's the one standing up in front of the jury making the argument. Can I just interrupt you to ask you follow up on that a little bit? Sure. Um, criminal defense attorneys um, often are, are put in a position of defending someone who's accused of crime um, and often you know ask jury juries at the beginning of every trial will you do you agree that the defendant is innocent until proven guilty you know and and, and will you will you please not just assume that this person is guilty of what they've done um what's an attorney to do when there's a conflict such that the the evidence is what we've seen here his client is not silent. His client has testified that he did nothing wrong. And the attorney might believe to himself, that is an incredible statement. If I, if I don't um, acknowledge to the jury that I think that that's an incredible statement, I'm going to lose my credibility. Whose credibility takes priority? The client who's on trial or the attorney? In that scenario, I think it would be the client's interest that would take precedence over the attorney's. Um, but in this case, we don't have a defendant 
who said, I didn't do anything wrong. He may have thought that's what his testimony amounted to, but in fact, what his testimony amounted to was that he was found in a warehouse where he did not belong. Well, would you agree that sort of the phrase caught in the act, um, which is a colloquialism we've all heard all of our lives, um, is not an objective statement of fact, but is in fact a sort of pejorative phrase that sure. implies someone's doing something wrong? Sure, but in this case, uh, the defense counsel's um, use of that phrase throughout the closing argument is pretty clear that it referred only to the act of being in the warehouse. Um, it well, it was, also, it, being in the warehouse without the owner's consent. That's correct, and that's also uh, a piece of evidence um, in the record. The, the, owners, the owner and the caretaker of the warehouse uh, both testified that neither of them had given the defendant permission to be in the warehouse. But, but we are not doing that. Do you agree with Mr. Haney that, that under Harbison we don't do a prejudice analysis? Uh, that, that you don't do, right, you don't do a prejudice analysis. It's, it's whether not, or not, it's simply, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, you go ahead. Oh, Sim, under Harbison, it's simply a question of whether or not defense counsel admitted guilt without the defendant's consent. That's the only inquiry that the court need to address under Harbison. Um, Sorry, I'm just going to interrupt you. Sure. I, I want to read this first line again because we, I mean, we're talking, we're, we're splitting hairs, but that's a little bit what we do. So the opening says, let me level with you. I agree it's not good to be caught in the act while being in somebody else's building <laughs> without consent. It doesn't say caught in the act of being in somebody else's building without consent. It's while. So it seems to me it's caught in the act in somebody else's building without consent. If you read that in a vacuum, is that an admission of guilt? If read in a vacuum, perhaps it, it might be interpreted that way. But the court's responsibility is to not read it in a vacuum, but in the full context of all of defense counsel's closing argument and in context of all of uh, what occurred during the trial which would include the defendant's own testimony, in which he admitted that he was in the building. Um, although he claimed uh, uh, an innocent, um, perhaps, reason for being in the building, it's still a breaking and entering, at least a misdemeanor breaking and entering under the law, because he had no permission to be there, yet he entered the building anyway. Did the defendant admit in his testimony that he had no permission to be in the building, that the owner of the building had not consented? The defendant himself did not, but the defendant also presented no evidence in rebuttal of the state's evidence that he had no permission to be there. But, but does a criminal defendant ever, ever have a burden of rebutting the state's evidence? Isn't the defendant presumed Innocent? That's correct, Your Honor. But in the full context of, of the case here, defense counsel during its closing argument was faced with having to deal with the fact that the state presented uncontested evidence that he had no permission to be in the building. Um, and in the full context of uh, closing argument, his references to being caught in the act all refer to being in the building and nothing more. During his closing argument, defense counsel challenged the state's evidence, the credibility of the state's evidence, the sufficiency of the state's evidence uh, by making um, a long argument uh, that challenged the state's evidence where he challenged um, in particular Mr. Houston, the caretaker's evidence about what was in the warehouse, when it was in the warehouse, uh, whether or not items were reported stolen. Um, and, and what did his closing argument say about whether or not there was consent? Because I understand what you're saying about stolen goods. I understand what you're saying about 
theft of property. Um, but did he, in his closing argument, ask the jurors to consider whether or not the state had proved the element that the owner of the building had not consented to the defendant being there? I don't recall that defense counsel specifically asked the jury to consider the question of consent. Um, I believe it was defense counsel's belief that because that evidence was uncontroverted, he had to face it during the closing argument. And, and then just to be clear, is being in the building, entering the building without the consent of the owner, would you agree that that is misdemeanor breaking and entering? I believe under the law it would be, yes, Your Honor. Would you agree that there are no other elements to be proven? For misdemeanor breaking and entering, no. Uh, for felony breaking and entering, there's an additional element of the intent to commit a felony during the breaking and entering. So assuming that Mr. Hester's attorney didn't admit a felonious intent, but did admit the elements of misdemeanor breaking and entering, what's your response to Mr. Haney's argument that that is a Harbison violation that requires a new trial on all of these charges? Well, first I would um, suggest to the court that there isn't evidence in the record that defense counsel didn't have the defendant's consent to make that concession. So does Harbison require a defendant who's appealing to put in the record evidence that he didn't consent? Not necessarily. I'm merely pointing out to the court that the record here is absent of that information. Isn't but, the burden on isn't the burden on the state to put forward evidence to point to evidence in the record that the defendant did consent? In this case, uh, what the state can offer is that there was a recess overnight between the end of the charge conference and the beginning of closing arguments, which at least would be suggestive of sufficient time for counsel and his client to have discussed this issue in some detail. But if counsel, as we have from the record, was having a hard time hearing, how would we know whether his client said anything to him and whether he really heard it? Isn't it aren't we asking the same counsel who the client is saying committed a harvesting violation to um, be in charge of protecting the client's right to point out that mistake? Well, clearly the defense counsel was having some difficulty with hearing, but it was sporadic throughout the trial. It wasn't a consistent issue. Uh, and there's certainly nothing to suggest that a one-on-one, -on -one close quarters uh, conversation between the two, defense counsel wouldn't have been able to hear his client. Uh, but I, in, in response to your question, Judge Inman, um, further, this case is different uh, from most of the cases under Harbison and its lineage because the defendant testified. And the defendant made uh, some concessions during that testimony. Um, and I would suggest to the court that uh, this case is more akin to a recent case decided by another panel of this court, which was included in state's memorandum of additional authority, and that's the state versus Gwynn matter at 282 NC at 160. It's a 2022 decision, which uh, the Supreme Court recently denied a, a petition for discretionary review. In that case, uh, another panel of this court found that there was no Harbison inquiry necessary when counsel merely recites facts and evidence, even though they're relevant to crimes charged, especially when the defendant himself has testified to those facts. So we're essentially an under, is it Gwyn? Gwyn, yep, G-U-I-N. Um, under Gwyn, it seems to me that they are saying that there can be an implied consent to the attorney's implied admission of guilt. Is that correct? I think that's one way to look at it, Your Honor, yes. If, if a defendant goes as far as 
admitting to a crime during his own testimony, what else is a defense counsel to do, uh, especially to save credibility in front of the jury, but to acknowledge those facts? Um, so, so just, and it's your argument that here the defendant in his testimony admitted to being in the building without the consent of the owner. He admitted to being in the building. No question about that. The uh, evidence that he did not have permission to be there came from the state, which is a fact in evidence. Um, and defense counsel, in this case, apparently felt that he had little choice but to acknowledge that fact because there was no contrary evidence. But, but you don't need contrary evidence to, to have a credibility issue, correct? So counsel isn't, isn't hamstrung by the fact that the state attempts to put in a fact, right? The jury can just not believe the witness. The jury could not believe the witness. Um, and that was, that's the case with the rest of the, the really, the, the charged crimes in this case, which are all felonies. At the end of uh, defense counsel's argument to the jury, he did ask that the jury find the defendant not guilty. Um, so this is, this is a case in which, uh, although defense counsel made some admissions, there was that plea at the end that, he find, that the jury find his defendant not guilty of, of all of the charges, which were the three felony charges. So I want to ask, we've focused a lot on McAllister and Harbison and this um, admission of guilt. Is it possible that we, we don't have a Harbison issue or a McAllister issue, but we have performance that is so poor that it rises to the level of ineffective assistance of counsel under the prejudicial prong? Well, that's, that's the second issue raised in the case, Your Honor. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, defense counsel uh, here didn't render service that was so poor under the law that it um, can be considered objectively, again, looking at all of the circumstances involved in this case, was below an objective standard of professional care. Defense counsels often are faced with having to make uh, quick decisions on their feet during trial. Sometimes issues are unanticipated. Um, and this counsel apparently faced that perhaps with uh, his client choosing to testify. It's not clear from the record whether or not uh, defense counsel was fully expecting his client to do that, but of course his client's choice prevails. If the defense attorney doesn't think he should testify, defendant wants to testify, defendant's going to testify. Would that be an analysis that, that we would look at if he is unprepared for his client to testify? They did have time before uh, defendant gave that testimony. Uh, the court inquired before lunch break whether or not defendant would be presenting evidence, and defense counsel said probably not. There was an hour and a half lunch break. When they returned from that, defense counsel informed uh, the court that the defendant was going to testify. So they did have some period of time during which they would presumably have discussed whether or not defendant was going to testify, and if so, you know, how that testimony might occur and what the consequences of him testifying would be. And in fact, the court did have that colloquy with the defendant before he testified, warning defendant that if he testifies, he'll be subject to cross-examination. Um, he waives his right to remain silent. Uh, that inquiry occurred. Defendant chose to testify anyhow. Um, so even if defense counsel wasn't fully anticipating that to happen, there was some time to prepare for that, uh, for that occurrence. But just as a, and I, I want to go back and ask you a little bit more about the Gwynn case, but just in that scenario, your defense counsel, your clients, you're planning on your client not testifying. You've been preparing for trial. And lo and behold, your client says at the, you know, the last moment, I want to testify. I'm going to testify. I'm going to testify. And you defense counsel think to yourself, this is not going to help you. This is going to hurt you. This is terrible, and it's going to hurt my credibility. Um, what's the lawyer's ethical responsibility when their client has 
given some testimony that just undermines their whole defense theory. Um, and the lawyer's worried about the lawyer's credibility. Isn't the lawyer responsible at that point to, um, to outside the presence of the jury, bring to the trial court's attention this conflict of interest that really prohibits the attorney from doing his job? I believe under that scenario, yes, the defense attorney would have that obligation if the client's testimony completely tanked the defense that defense counsel had planned um, to use. But you've just but that's, said that you've, that's you've, not, you've said that because this client testified that this distinguishes this case from McAllister. Correct. And makes this not a Harbison you know, not harvest an error. So I'm just, and I realize we're talking about Strickland now, but how do you have it both ways? Well, in this scenario, the, the defendant's testimony did not tank the entire defense. Um, all it did was admit that he was inside the building. Um, and defense counsel was careful to point out to the jury that there was an absence of evidence, or at least it should question the remaining uh, state's evidence. Well, not the remaining evidence on without permission, right? Because he conceded that. He did concede that. In Quinn, um, the defendant testified, um, I'll be honest with you, I lost my cool. I beat the hell out of her. And I'm guilty of that. Um, isn't that a lot stronger than the admissions made by Mr. Hester here? It is, Your Honor. It is um, quite stronger. But it still, Gwynn still stands for the proposition that when a client makes an admission, a fact and evidence, defense counsel um, is not under any constraint to use that evidence during the closing argument, especially if He's trying to conserve um, credibility for both himself and his client. But you agree that here the defendant did not testify that he was in that building without the consent of the owner. That's correct. Um, getting back to uh, the second issue, whether or not uh, there was deficient performance here. The courts have said quite clearly that defense counsel is entitled to a strong presumption of having performed uh, at a professional level. Um, and that's quite a, a, a difficult burden for defendants to overcome. The courts warn about, uh, you know, second chair guessing uh, about what could have happened, what should have happened, what the defense attorney could have done differently. Rather, the court should look at the defendant, the defense counsel's performance in the context of what was occurring at the time. Um, and what was occurring at the time uh, of this trial um, compared to the defense counsel's performance, given the presumption that he's afforded uh, for uh, having rendered professional judgment, uh, the record is not sufficient to show that the, the defendant, the defense counsel, um, gave ineffective assistance. Even if it does, the defendant was not prejudiced by that um, perfor uh, deficient performance, if there was any. Because under uh, Strickland, it's a two-part test now. Unlike Harbison, in a standard ineffective assistance of counsel claim, not only does the defendant have to show deficient performance, but also that deficient performance prejudiced the defendant. In this case, uh, there was a, a lot of evidence uh, put on by the state suggesting the defendant's guilt. Um, items were found, well, first of all, he was found by the police inside the warehouse. Second, there was a lot of property found in his pickup truck that Mr. Houston, the caretaker, identified as either items having come 
from the warehouse that he remembers was in the warehouse, or were at least um, the same kind of things that were, were in the warehouse. And we know from defendant's counsel, of course, that these items don't just grow out of the ground and come from anywhere. That, that's correct. They, they do not. May, um, may I ask just one about the prejudice, and, and you agreed that, that nowhere um, did defendant admit that, that he was in the building without consent, correct? That's correct. Um, and the attorney said that he was in somebody else's building without consent. Don't we have prejudice right there as he's, he has at least admitted to some elements of felonious, right, breaking and entering, and, and all of the elements of misdemeanor, or no? I would disagree with um, that defense counsel admitted sufficient uh, facts to establish felony breaking and entering. Some of that, the elements, not all of them. Some of them, and mm -hmm. that's okay. Even under Harbison, okay. counsel is allowed to uh, make admissions of some elements of a crime, but must draw the line, the courts draw the line at admitting every well, element. Well, I guess, I guess my question is just one step removed from that. If, if defense counsel admits some elements of the crime that completes the testimony that shows the other elements of the crime, and you put them together, don't you have prejudice? I think looking more broadly at all of the evidence presented in the case, what the defendant has to be able to demonstrate is that there's a reasonable probability that but for counsel's performance, the jury would have found differently. And even if defense counsel made admissions to the extent that uh, it established um, misdemeanor breaking and entering, there is so much more evidence presented in this case, not to mention the fact that because defendant chose to testify, his entire criminal record came into evidence. And part of that record was uh, convictions for the exact types of offenses for which he was being tried uh, in this case. Now, I assume there was a, a instruction to the jury, however, that was there any instructions to the jury about his criminal record? Um, I don't recall. So you're suggesting that because he had that criminal record, jurors could consider that as proof? They could certainly consider it as um, uh, evidence of, of his credibility. Credibility. But not substantive evidence. No, not, su that? not substantive evidence, but certainly of his credibility. Would you, uh, uh, just to make sure I understand, um, if this panel were to conclude that there were Harbison error in this case, um, would you agree that there is no reason for this panel to even get to the Strickland analysis? That's correct. Uh, if the court finds that there's an Harbison error, then the court has two choices. It could either remand for further proceedings uh, to answer uh, whether or not there was consent uh, given by the client for whatever admissions were made, uh, or the court could order a new trial if it feels that there's sufficient evidence in the record to uh, command that relief. If the if the jury had, <clears throat> excuse me, if the jury had only found the defendant guilty of the misdemeanors, would you agree that there was a Harbison error, and those would have been a Harbison error in those convictions? Uh, only if there wasn't consent given. Okay. Um, and for what it's worth, it makes sense that the client, that the defendant in this case, would have given permission for his attorney to make admissions of the misdemeanor offense because had he been convicted of the felony offenses as he was, he was sentenced as a habitual felon. He faced a much harsher sentence as a result of the convictions, whereas if it were only a conviction for misdemeanor breaking and entering, he wouldn't have faced uh, sentencing as a habitual felon. So you might argue that if the counsel had not used the last line of his closing, to say find him not guilty of everything, but instead had argued you should find him guilty of the misdemeanors per his omissions, that that might have been a, a good trial strategy to help him avoid the habitual felon. It might have been. Um, and I think the suggestion, um, to the extent that there was one, that the jury should find him guilty of only the misdemeanor offense, uh, 
but not specifically mentioning that and only asking for a, a, an acquittal on all charges was also a good strategy. Um, just briefly on the third issue, um, there, the state would suggest that there's insufficient evidence in the record to suggest that uh, the, tri the trial judge had a good reason to make an inquiry as to whether or not an absolute impasse uh, existed. Defendant's comment to the court before his testimony was simply, my attorney apparently can't hear very well. I wanted him to ask some questions that he didn't ask. Um, he didn't elaborate on that. Uh, he didn't raise the issue at any other point during the trial, including during or after the testimony of the state's witnesses. Um, that is not enough. That comment alone is not enough to cause the court to uh, wonder whether or not there's an absolute impasse um, and, and conduct an inquiry into that. There could be a number of reasons defense counsel did not ask those questions. Um, in the heat of, of the trial, defense counsel does have a wide latitude as to determine how to examine witnesses, what questions to ask, etc. cetera. Um, and we don't even know that defense counsel didn't actually hear his client telling him to ask these questions, it may simply be the case that they were not helpful questions to ask. Was it, uh, was it incumbent upon the judge to inquire more when you've got a defendant saying something against his attorney in open court? Should there have been more of an inquiry? Under the, the circumstances of, the, of this case, I think the trial judge was not required to make further inquiry. Um, the statement that I wanted my lawyer to ask certain questions I'm sure happens quite a lot. Uh, defendants often, you know, want um, more than their attorneys think is uh, reasonable and responsible to do during a trial. And there isn't necessarily time to turn to your client and explain why I can't ask that question or it's not a good idea to ask that question. Um, and without more um, complaint from the defendant, the judge had little reason to enter into that inquiry. And in fact, during the, the plea colloquy, um, although it wasn't, as I say in the brief, a ringing endorsement of counsel's performance, uh, the judge did ask whether or not defendant was satisfied with his attorney's performance, and defendant said, yeah, I guess so. Uh, if he had a serious issue with regard to those questions not being asked or other things that defense counsel didn't do, that he wanted him to do, he certainly did not express that at, at that point or at any other time during the trial. Uh, so I'd suggest to the, to the court that um, the court did not err in not making further inquiry into that question. Um, judges, this is not a, state contends that this is not a, a Harbison issue case, that there wasn't deficient performance by counsel, and even if there was, there's an overwhelming amount of evidence suggestive of defendant's guilt of these charges and that the court did not err in not inquiring further into um, whether or not an absolute impasse existed. Uh, for those reasons, the state would ask the court to um, uphold the convictions. Thank you. Thank you very much. Judge Inman, I'll start with just your question about whether the jurors got instructions that Mr. Hester's prior convictions were not substantive evidence of guilt. They did, did get that instruction. And I hope that the, the court really does hold to that line that whatever happened in Mr. Hester's past, this trial was a new day. His credibility, certainly the jurors could consider that. 
But when he took the stand, when he walked into that courtroom, he had what I've heard other trial attorneys call the mantle of innocence on him, and it was the state's burden to rebut, the, to prove anything to the contrary. Um, also, I believe, Judge Collins, you had a question about what should an attorney do if a client tells him, I want to make, or her, any attorney, I want to make these admissions, and the attorney thinks these are going to be really damaging. If the client wants to do that, then the attorney has to go with the client. Specifically, I'd refer the court to the Mormon and the Curry cases that are cited in the brief for more information on, on that point. Um, and just briefly on the question of what should a reasonable attorney do, a reasonable attorney does have to maintain a consistent theory of the case. That's why I cited those basic practitioners' manuals in the brief. That's not, that's not advanced federal habeas law. That's not complicated statutory interpretation. That's just a basic duty of an attorney. Uh, also, there was some discussion of what happened on the day of trial. And as the state noted, yes, on the morning that Mr. Hester testified, his trial attorney himself told the court, I don't think we're going to have any evidence. So there's a very short time between that and when Mr. Hester testified. And I don't think that was enough time, given the conditions of trying a case, for there to be a meaningful back and forth about what that testimony would be, how it would affect what Mr. Hester's attorney said during closing, and so forth. I just, I don't, especially given an attorney, as the courts noted, who is having trouble hearing, I don't think that was possible. So so in that instance, um, is is the attorney's performance falling below the the standard, or is that defendant who has brought upon himself a difficult situation? No, Your Honor, that is not on Mr. Hester. Uh, that was the attorney falling below a reasonable standard. I agree with the state that if you're a trial attorney, you do have to uh, roll with the punches, as as it were, but you still have to keep a consistent theory of the case, and that duty doesn't change even if your client makes a last-minute decision to testify. I think that's, that is a standing duty. Um, and I would briefly, uh, Judge Jackson had the question, isn't this a good strategy? For purposes of Harbison, it, respectfully, Your Honor, it doesn't matter. May, that's, you know, that was one of the questions. Doesn't matter if it's a good strategy, and it just doesn't. The client's autonomy is what matters. Um, in, in terms of whether it's a good strategy for the Strickland analysis, as I said, there still has to be a consistent trial strategy. I'd also look, like to talk briefly about the Ginn case. First of all, I don't think it stands for the proposition that just because someone testifies that makes a Harbison inquiry unnecessary. That's not how I read the case. And I'd also just note that the case does say, uh, paragraph 38 and 39, uh, that the defense counsel did not bolster the state's evidence or attest to the accuracy of defendant's admissions. Uh, and the defense counsel statements can logically be interpreted as a recitation of facts presented at trial. We don't hear, we had a trial attorney who was not just following his client's lead. He really was undercutting the client. And the other point I would just note, this court has never held that if a defendant testifies and then his attorney makes admissions that are squarely within what the client said, and I'm not saying that's what happened here, but even in that scenario, this court has never said that makes, in Ginn or anywhere else, uh, that that makes a Harbison inquiry unnecessary. If that were the case, we wouldn't, uh, let me uh, start that again, because the point of Harbison is protecting people's autonomy. And when Mr. Hester took the stand and spoke, or anybody takes the stand at their own trial, they don't get the safety of the colloquy that we go through with a guilty plea, because those two things you're doing have different functions. Um, if somebody is going to have, going to allow someone other than the jurors to decide guilt, we have to make sure that's a knowing and voluntary waiver. And that's why we have the protections 
that we go through in a guilty plea. And Mr. Hester did not have any of those protections here when his attorney conceded guilt. Instead, we had a trial attorney who said that he was caught in the act when laws were broken and gave the jurors all the information they needed to draw the conclusion that Mr. Hester was guilty. The trial attorney was not performing his role as he should have under Harbison. He was acting unreasonably under Strickland. And with respect to the Ali claim, he wasn't protecting his client's right to autonomy. I'd, otherwise, Your Honors, I would rest on the briefs and uh, ask the court for a new trial or, in the alternative, a remand. Thank you for your attention. Thank you very much, counsel. Well, thank you for your excellent arguments. We're going to recess court in case there are students here who need to get to another class.